This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Ernie Eves, John Turley, Ewart, and Dave Sparrow here on the Oakley Show. It's our midweek panel and topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. Uh, you can pound uh, this one as well because... The Liberals are putting together a platform for the fall election. And the Toronto caucus, it turns out the CBC got a hold of a memo or whatever their plans were, and they've got 19 proposals. And in pecking order, by priority, uh, number 18, I think, was a soda tax. That's been dismissed. So, uh, But number two on the list was Adam Vaughn's idea, uh, where he wants to see a tax on house flipping. So if you sold in less than a year, uh, you pay 50% on the profit. So let's just say, uh, figuratively, you spend a million on it, uh, and then in less than a year, you sell it for 1.2. You're paying 100 k in tax. And uh, then it goes in a graduated downscale after uh, two years, 25%, 15 after three, 10 after four, and five after five years. So you're still on the hook, effectively. John Turley, you were, uh, how do you perceive this? Uh, I love it, because it's going to make sure Andrew Scheer gets elected. That's why. <laughs> uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, if, if this gets anywhere near the policy platform, it will confirm to just about every Canadian in Canada that the Liberals have literally lost their minds. <laughs> you, know, this, uh, you know, going after uh, a principal residences, which, by the way, are one of the primary vehicles that people use to save for their retirement, is absolutely crazy. And to think that this is going to increase the housing supply is nuts because what it actually does is lock people into their housing for five years so they can avoid the capital gains tax. It reduces transactions. It reduces the supply. And I guess, you know, I don't know if uh, Adam Vaughn really wants to return and back to city council and he doesn't want to be an MP anymore. But I mean, if you wanted to think of a policy that would ensure that he, you know, was uh, kicked out of office, this would be the one. Well, boy, he's got to hang on because he's got, uh, what, four years and then he's got a t- at least two more in another thing to qualify for the lifetime pension, doesn't he? <laughs> I mean, you need six, I think. That, that, that's what you do. Uh, six or two well, terms. Well, last that, we could tax him at 50%. Well, that's, uh, yeah, he'll have to find a new place to reside. Uh, everybody then in agreement, is this just a... Uh, nonsensical it does seem uh, overreaching and it's the slim edge of the wedge in terms of this it, if it led to taxing principal residences uh you know i have to agree with john and i have to hope that uh, mr Shear would repeal it on uh, on election because uh, that's probably what would happen okay well you know uh, repealing laws are uh, an interesting thing did we talk about the 407 <laughs> what is about the 407 147 times the 407, by the way, uh, there's no way that this would fly anyway, right? I mean, they couldn't go back up that road and uh, actually put it back into uh, public hands. I Well, um, either you believe in public highways or with the ability to have a privately owned highway for which people are willing to pay uh, to reduce traffic, travel time, et cetera, et cetera, or you don't. But but if you say the 407 should be a public highway, uh, then I don't think there's any room for anybody to ever own a, a private road and to toll it, or for the government to toll it for that matter. Unless you're going to start tolling all 400 series highways, then it would make sense. 401, the 400, the 402, the 403. I think that was number four in the liberal list. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, so I think you have to decide what, you know, whether you agree or whether you don't agree with the 407, it is a privately owned highway. You do have to pay a toll. Nobody forces you to use it. You can always use the 401 as an alternative if you don't want to pay to go a little faster. Uh, that's 
basically it. Uh, so you can debate this all you want, but I think that to reopen the contract now would cost, I don't know, A, if you'd be able to do it legally, but assuming that you would be able to, it's going to cost probably billions of dollars to get out of. By the way, and I know we've spoken of this again, it's almost like uh, the twin sister uh, of the idea of the 407, the LCBO. I mean, it's a, an asset that returns about $2.3 billion to the coffers on an annual basis. Some people are saying we could actually do better uh, if we had, you know, just privatized liquor sales. The LCBO model still work for you? Well, I think there may be room for other people to compete, but the LCBO model... Um, the LCBO returns, as you've just pointed out, serious dollars to the provincial government. So if you were to sell it, and as a matter of fact, when I was finance minister, there were pe- there were people that offered to buy it, who should remain nameless, but one, uh, one such offer suggested to me was $5 billion. And I said, well, you got the five right, it's just the zero after it that you're forgetting, because you have to produce enough of a purchase price to be able to make the investment that uh, the return pardon me that you're going to get the government gets every year so say two billion dollars for the sake of argument ad infinitum so if you were to go out to the private sector and say i have an asset here that's virtually guaranteed to never return less than two billion dollars a year it's always going to go up for the next 100 years tell me what factor you would need in the private sector to uh how much is that worth? It's worth a hell of a lot more than $5 billion. That's two and a half years of income. Wow. All right. Uh, you don't want to mention who actually no, came to you with that lowball offer, do you? All right. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, I wanted to ask you finally, and Mr. Sparrow, maybe you can weigh in on this. There was a piece in the Globe and Mail that talks about cuts that are throwing original Canadian scripted programming into a death spiral. And uh, the Writers Guild of Canada is really concerned that uh, they're seeing... Uh, a decreasing amount of, of uh, local programming, Canadian content being uh, produced by the major English language commercial broadcast groups, uh, CTV uh, and Rogers Media, and of course, Chorus is included in all of that. What's going on? Well, I think uh, you and I have uh, spoken about this before on on previous programs about how we have failed to regulate the internet. Um, we're failing to uh, deal with these over the top providers like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and and the like. And we're not saying that they need to present Canadian programming, meaning CanCon, Canadian stories written by Canadian uh, writers and the like. And so many of the broadcasters are turning to deals that are getting shows. Uh, kind of co-produced between them and Netflix, and uh, those are being written by, largely by Americans and, and by foreign authors. And so the Writers Guild is is uh, losing work, and direct Canadian content uh, numbers are going down. And it is unfortunate that the federal government doesn't treat these businesses uh, on an equal and level playing field as they do other Canadian broadcaster uh, companies who actually produce Canadian programs. So are you talking about a Netflix tax now? You're a supportive? Uh, well, as as you know, I use the word uh, an investment in Canadian programming rather than tax because the CMF, uh, and uh, that's the Canadian Media Fund, and the others that uh, support that, it leads to billions of dollars worth of production across Canada and approximately 179,000 full-time equivalent jobs in Canada. And so it's a, a terrific investment and it certainly supports uh, Canadian stories and helps to define Canada and acts as an advertisement for all kinds of Canadian uh, businesses and the like uh, around the world. Why is John shaking his head? Well, this sounds like the sacred auto worker, but we've got the sacred writer here uh, that uh, that Dave is throwing into this. Um, you know, quite 
quite frankly, we live in 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 a, in a war- global environment now where people can choose to watch whatever they want produced anywhere in the world. So you're not a cultural nationalist? No, I'm not a cultural nationalist. I, and I'm definitely not for, for throwing money at, at, at waste, at, at, at essentially at, at products that people don't watch. I mean, if you're at, it, there's TVs, TV channels will love to play your program if they can get an audience because that's they're in the business of selling eyeballs to advertisers. If they can't sell any, any advertising. What's the point? And so, you know, one of the things that I do agree with what Dave was talking about there is that we do have a production industry in Canada that is very competitive, uh, that brings in, you know, a couple billion bucks a year nationally, if not more. We should nine be, billion. Uh, so we should <laughs> but, be supporting that. But why throw money after writers who are not generating audiences? Well, let's just be fair. They are generating audiences on the programs that are being made, things like Cardinal and Carter and... and um, but um, it's in a death spiral. Games People are not investing well, they in use it. Well, the, they use the word uh, death spiral, and that has to do more with the unfair playing field that our broadcasters are faced with right now in terms of... of uh, how Netflix and others are getting benefit by not paying uh, HST, by not paying corporate taxes, and by basically siphoning $750 million a year All right, but you have the same thing with journalism. I mean, people can access on the Internet all kinds of periodicals all over the world and whatever, and so it's the death spiral. It's exactly the same scenario. Okay, I mean, by the way, your buddy uh, Jerry Diaz wrote an op-ed piece in uh, the Sun Post Media the other day talking about this uh, panel that's being struck of experts, including Unifor and journalists and whatever. Unifor's not an expert on this. That's, But anyways, go ahead. No, well, they, they're <laughs> actually going to determine who should then create the second panel that determines who gets the money and how much. Yeah, well... That'll the, be the, objective. The, you know, well, that's the question, <laughs> well, is you, it? Know, you know what's going to happen? The Toronto Star's getting their cash from the Unifor rep, that's for sure. I mean, people keep thinking about it's about buying off journalists. No, no, what it is, it's about directing money towards organizations that that print uh, news stories and commentary that you agree with. That's what this comes down to. So it's totally political. Totally political and outrageous. Out, absolutely outrageous. Is That's that one a- of the reasons I don't like having government money subsidizing writers. I mean, well, who gets to say what people, who, you know, who gets to write what? You know, you may think this person's funny and other people don't think that one's funny, but because this person's, you know, in with the actor union, he gets the money. No, because That's this person. <laughs> so, first of all, they're not subsidizing writers. They're subsidizing, if you will, the creation of Canadian content, which helps to support all of the initiatives that go on in Canada and project our culture to the world. I am a national culturalist or was a uh, cultural, cultural naturalist. Um, and, and I believe that we have a story worth telling and that uh, Canada. Canada deserves to have our identity on the world stage. We're beside the biggest production facility in the world, the United States, and it's uh, difficult to compete in the global marketplace, and only two countries in the world don't subsidize their film and television industry. That's the U.S. and India, Hollywood and Bollywood. I see. And uh, Jerry D., I saw him sucking up to Trudeau the other day. Just goofing. Uh, <laughs> hey, listen, by the way, speaking of which, these big leviathans that come in here, Google, Twitter, and Facebook, there's a, a big committee hearing up in Ottawa. Just quickly around the horn, I'm tight on time, but there's talk that they've gotten too big and need to be broken up. John, do you agree or disagree? Uh, I don't think we should be breaking them up, but what I think we should understand is they're publishers, 
and they should be required to follow specific guidelines. Just like a newspaper has to follow, just like a broadcaster has to follow, that's the missing link here, and it's not happening. All right, well, if they've got, like, falsified information or whatever, is it incumbent upon them to take it down, or do you think uh, the government ought to clean up the house as far as that's concerned? No, I think it's incumbent upon them to take it down, but there should, as John said, I think there should be certain guidelines and policies that they have to follow. I don't think that they should be putting out there. I, I mean, I found that the Facebook response to the most recent one was absolutely despicable. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.